0: If you had to teach one class to entrepreneurs, what class would that be?
1: Well, I think I'd go actually back into the high schools and I'd teach the most basic accounting and finance course and talk about the difference between a job and creating wealth. What are the differences? I think for most, at least for me, when I was growing up, I didn't appreciate that wealth could be created. I thought the mission was to get through high school and go to university, get a job. And earn a salary and try to improve that salary over time and and never understood the difference between what is commonly talked about in school, which is that path versus being self-employed and creating wealth or even generational wealth for your yourself and your family. And I think there's a huge difference between the two. And I really didn't become aware of that till I was about thirty five.
0: There like a light bulb moment when that happened?
1: Yeah. you know, I'd done the former, program, decently well, joined the Navy when I was uh, 18 and gone, got an engineering degree and served a dozen years in the Navy and and then started a small business uh, when I left the Navy. And it wasn't until five years into that business that I realized I created a decent company, but a kind of a crappy job. And in fact, I went to a program at that time called Birthing of Giants. And it was a Vern Harnish, Inc. magazine, entrepreneur you know, YEO program, and, and they talked about this very thing, and, and it was epiphany for me. And I was older than many of the guys in the room, and it suddenly dawned on me that the guys who had made, you know, a lot of money in their lives weren't doing it by earning a wage. They had created wealth in their organizations, and I went back to my uh, company and ultimately shut it down. <laughs> ¶¶ This is a very simple test. People ask me if I'd go public again. I say this. Build a great company that has high competitive advantages. Raise money when you can. Recognize you're going to get diluted a little bit. And hopefully at the end of the day, you still own a piece of the company. Probably another lesson from an entrepreneurial perspective, which is. And this is the lesson that's the most important one of all of them is this very, very simple thing. It was growing rapidly, I was winning awards, and I thought I was an amazing entrepreneur. And then two years later, I was laying every single person off and trying to figure out how to not have my house taken by the bank. You don't think it can happen to you that there is liability and risk downside and what that means. I learned my lesson the hardest conceivable way in that regard, and it taught me those lessons. And forever after, I structured businesses in a much different way. Good morning. My name is Trevor Hill. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I've spent my career building companies in the water sector.
0: What's that mean?
1: What's it mean to be a serial entrepreneur or to... Attempt to build companies in the water sector.
0: Yeah, in the water sector. That's why I thought it would be kind of cool to have you on. I've never thought of a water entrepreneur or even getting in that line of business.
1: So yeah, you know, you'd think that because water is so important that there'd be all sorts of water entrepreneurs out there and all trying to do good things for the planet. But most utilities are owned by government entities, cities, or districts or municipalities, and when you look at the sector closely, you find that most of the sector, the activities that are occurring in water are not really run by entrepreneurs. In fact, we hire, as a society, people to be in the water sector for their stability, and for me, I had been in the Navy operating reverse osmosis desalination equipment in some naval ships in the late 80s, and it was a time when the navies had were converting their ways of making water for the troops and for cooking from evaporation technology, which worked, in my case, extremely well in cold water in the Arctic and the northern parts of the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans, to navies were starting to think about moving their operations and participating in activities in arid regions of the Gulf and other areas like that. That precipitated a change in technology for navies, many of them. And in Canada's case, we moved to reverse osmosis desalination. And I happen to be the person involved in converting our navy ships from evaporative technologies to membrane technologies, which worked better in hot water. Of course, we're in the Red Sea and near the bottom of the Red Sea, close to Djibouti, the, the sea temperatures can be 90 or even 95 degrees Fahrenheit. That was how I got my start in water. I was operating incredibly new equipment for the Navy in the day in a very arid region of the world. And I became sensitized to the certainty of future water scarcity. And I thought, we're going to run out of water in the world one day for sure. And there's some pretty cool technologies that I think can help. And, And that's all I've done for the last 30 years. Companies associated with water and technology and trying to make some sort of a difference.
0: I had never heard of Djibouti till you just said it. Is that spelled DJIBOUTI? Do I have the right country there? Yeah. For people who don't know, if you're looking at Africa, it's basically on the northeast tip of Africa and right by Saudi Arabia. That's exactly right. So I guess people have an idea. That's exactly right. Well, I didn't hear that because I'm looking at Google Maps. I'm not that (laughs) good. So, uh, at what time were you doing this? And like, what was your lifestyle at this point in time? Because that seems very interesting if you're a young dude over there on vessels dealing with water.
1: Apart from my uh, wanting to teach uh, young people a little bit about finance and how to read a balance sheet, I think the other thing that was particularly useful in my career, and it was a bit of a, it's a funny story, I had joined the Navy, wanted to be a fighter pilot. Put your three choices down on the application form. So I picked fighter pilot, for number one and fighter pilot for number two and then marine systems engineer for number three because you know i love to sail and i had really no idea what that actually even meant and one day the military called and said hey you can't be a fighter pilot but how would you like to be a marine systems engineer being 17 at the time and thinking that sounded pretty fun i hit the bid and that was how i determined my career really for the next 40 years in about 15 seconds But what happened so I went through that military college system, got an engineering degree, went to sea for many years. And then this was at the time when the first Gulf War was heating up a bit. To answer your lifestyle question, I was was 25 at the time. I was deputy engineering officer on the Canadian warship called HMCS Huron. And we were on our way to that first conflict. And while we were in Gibraltar, my boss was dancing in a bar in Spain, and slipped a disc in his neck, and was medevaced home. And the captain came down to me in the middle of the night, and I was in my cart, and he said, Trevor, you have the strain. And two hours later, we sailed into Port Said and into the Suez Canal. For the next eight months, I acted in the role of uh, engineering officer for the ship. About 300 of the 500 people on the ship reported to me, and I was really pretty young for that role, 25. I had the technical training, but not a lot of experience with people. And I thought that in retrospect, that time, learning about leadership and people, getting the chance to screw that up on a daily basis was incredibly valuable for me. And and it was a very intense time for the world. There was a lot of stuff going on on these ships and others, and things were breaking every day. It was complicated from a logistics perspective and from operating perspective, and everyone was on edge, including my team. And if there was a challenge from a leadership perspective, that was definitely it. And that was 20 hour a day, seven day a week job for eight months nonstop. So it wasn't much of a lifestyle. But it was a great learning experience.
0: So are you like a pretty mellow guy in general, would you say?
1: Yeah, I think people probably would classify me as being relatively intense. Maybe it's in the category of a bit intolerant. But I think what happened in that process is that I learned that you could get a lot of stuff done if you just focused on it and took away a lot of the obstacles that people perceive are in their way. And suddenly you realize that you can make things happen. If you set your mind to it. I think I was a bit always like that. I think generally, I feel like I'm a laid back person, but I think a lot of people would say, that
0: guy's pretty intense. What's been your most intense situation that you could share with us?
1: Well, I'm sharing one. I mean, the military time was incredibly, te- I happened to love it. Every aspect of that trip was unusual. I had equipment breaking, as I said, every day, and I had to organize massive pieces of equipment to be shipped into remote locations. I had to fuel the ship off off other countries, fueling ships. We actually took fuel in Djibouti, which was incredibly interesting. I remember pulling up to the dock in Djibouti and a guy came up to me with no paperwork and a train, a series of train cars full of fuel. It could have been anything said to me, here's your fuel. And this is, you know, this is like the, imagine a ghetto of the worst description. And here's a train car with allegedly fuel in it and no paperwork. And I had to take on 5,000 barrels of fuel. Me and my team performed the test to figure out if it's fuel or milk or water or something else. And then we took the fuel and ultimately paid cash for the uh, about a million dollars of cash, and that was happening every day. The challenges were uh, credible through that process, and then so I think part of why I was able to start a, a series of businesses was that I'd seen pretty much the worst things that the world can throw at you at work round the clock for years in sort of mission impossible scenario. So it seemed for starting a business and solving water problems seemed trivial a bit compared to what I had been dealing with, particularly on the personnel side, which was challenging to say the least.
0: Oh yeah, no, I was asking because I don't want to miss any excitement in your voice. You seem pretty mellow, so that's what I was making sure and uh, was asking about that. So if we jump into your first business coming out of the military, did you just start off right away starting your own business or just tell us how you're able to save up money and do that?
1: Yes, it's been interesting. Back in 1983, when I was in high school, the military in Canada had been recruiting this particular kind of engineer for a new naval vision, building new ships, and it was very exciting, and a bunch of us got recruited and went through the schooling in that process. By 1980, or by 1990, or probably 91, they had changed their plan for the Canadian Navy and were now buying people out. And I'd had a pretty exciting career. It served almost 12 years. And so the military bought me out after that period. And that ended up being a year's pay and a little bit of severance and things like that. And I had developed a little bit of real estate on the side. And it was a combination of having a year's pay and living in the smallest suite of a fourplex that I had converted that gave me enough runway to start a little consulting company that today would be called design-build engineering firm. But for me, I just thought, well, I, you know, I'll just do what I was doing in the military for civilian installation, solve complicated water and wastewater challenges in various regions. That first business really looked like that. And really what it was, was I, I would just do stuff that other engineers wouldn't do. I guess it's kind of funny because I would win this work and I would think, wow, you know, we're pretty good or whatever. But really, we were crazy is why we won, because people would say, hey, we need a water plant or a wastewater plant built at the top of a ski resort. Oh, and by the way, we need it to be finished by October 15th because it starts to snow and you can't get in there. And it would be like May, and we'd be, okay, that sounds fine. Or we need something built in the Arctic because they've just changed a policy, and we need it done so that we can ship the equipment in because it freezes over completely in another three months. And we would just say, okay, yeah, that sounds fine. Let's go do that. I spent a decade doing the most unusual water and wastewater problems in the toughest place to work in the world. We actually did decently well on that, but it was always, very much outlying work and you know it's probably another lesson from an entrepreneurial perspective which is don't be afraid to be the outlier initially this is how you earn your stripes for us it was certainly true
0: and you mentioned that you bought a duplex which one was it
1: yeah i bought in the late 80s a a (laughs) condemned fourplex i've been in africa no no in victoria (laughs) british columbia yeah africa Africa. i'm kidding (laughs) no yeah that would, would go well. No, you know, all the while as being in the Navy, I started to realize that there was a business world out there and it seemed like the thing that people talked about the most was real estate. I started reading about that in my spare time and uh, eventually figured out that if you could take an existing home and make it into revenue-producing asset, then it would be valued in a different way. And so I bought a condemned 1912 character home in Victoria, And in evenings and weekends, I converted it into a legal conforming fiveplex. Again, mission impossible, crazy job, but learned the hard way a little bit about real estate.
0: How about we talk about that project? Just tell us what you learned. There's some stories that maybe someone who's listening, thinking about flipping a house and doing something similar, what would you advise them?
1: Real estate's probably a little different now, but often the same as well this is just math it turns out if you could take an old home and convert it into suites not only does it improve the place but the valuation methodology changes the comps are from a single family dwelling perspective suddenly it's into a revenue generating property perspective and today with cap rates where they are which is the way revenue producing properties are valued it can be a huge step up in value. I figured that out by going to the library and then I bought a crappy old condemned home and built it into a really nice multi-unit, actually five unit property. And the revenue that that thing produced pretty much tripled its value. And that was one of the ways that I able to fund my next venture. And why did
0: you move to Canada?
1: Well, I was born in Canada. I was born in Vancouver, British Columbia. I grew up in a little town west of Vancouver called Abbotsford. And then into the Navy directly from there.
0: Was it the Canadian Navy that you're part of? Yep. Then you were talking about your next venture. Was this after you developed the house, you still had your, was it called Hill Murray and Associates, the company that you founded coming out?
1: Yep, it was. Okay. And that was the consulting company that I was chatting with you about. That was the first thing I did on the technical side. And in fact, I did it in the garage of that home that I converted. Truly the garage startup, no overheads dragged a couple of boys with me from the Navy, and we went through that process of starting that business
0: together. Any suggestions on someone who might do something similar as far as maybe they're working from home or maybe they're hiring their friends, and just tell us what you learned from that.
1: Bottom line is keep your overheads as low as possible. There's no glory in a massive office, and this is a way that I was able to keep my overheads incredibly low. I was the owner of our office and we were able to build our business and make all the necessary mistakes early in that without having that kind of exposure. Keep overheads low. It's all about cash flow.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. Do you want to hit on that anymore? Because I think what happens is people too often, they feel like they have to spend the money on a nice office for no reason. It works both ways. You the expenses low versus your revenue high. Obviously, everyone's just always looking at revenue and not always thinking about the expenses.
1: You're hundred percent right and I think lots of entrepreneurs can create a bit of revenue but like you say quickly load themselves up with debt or expenses and particularly now I mean cash is king in the upcoming years cash is going to be incredibly important if you can minimize to the greatest extent possible your expenses you got to do it and be extremely frugal in how you deploy that capital it's very tempting as a young entrepreneur to believe you're particularly if you're doing well that it's nice to have a big office, and fancy cars and everything else, but in life and in business, cash is king.
0: Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call, and um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was gonna be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day, and I'm like, you know what, I'm here, I gotta do this. That just joined Patreon to support you guys. So that's something that helps you guys out. Keep doing what you're doing. then cool. You know. Yeah, I appreciate it. With the Patreon membership, you get this one-on-one call. Plus, we're doing two group calls a month now with past guests. Plus, there's an exclusive Patreon feed where you get special episodes if you're a Patreon member. Oh, man. Nice. Awesome. To to awesome. And how much money were you making annually from the business, like to your bottom line as the owner of the company?
1: Oh, none. You know, I had very little cash flow. I mean, I remember I was moonlighting. So while I was still in the Navy, I would do engineering projects at night, little pump stations for people's homes that are being built in difficult locations. I'd do the engineering and stamp them myself. And, you know, I'd make 800 bucks on a job like that. And I'd use that money to buy letterhead or plane ticket or something like that. So in the early days, made zero ultimate, you know, until much later in that evolution.
0: Well, that's what I was trying to figure out. If business that you started in your garage, what was your next step? Would you consider a success? Because it seems like you had a consulting business for a little over five years.
1: Yeah, I probably started it in 1992 and sold off its pieces in 1999, a little more than that. And yeah, we ultimately grew that up into a $10 million annual business. It became quite a good business. And we did projects all over the world. We got more organized as as far as what a business was and got some professionals in. I think we were 50 or 60 people at the peak. It was a good business. What I learned about that business was it wasn't a wealth creation strategy. It was, i sort of bought myself a, a crappy job. And I spent the next 25 years studying that phenomenon on how to create wealth as opposed to how to create a job. And most entrepreneurs create a, you know, a shitty job for themselves as opposed to generational wealth. And I think that's a huge differentiator that people should understand.
0: So it was a successful consulting business. That's what I was alluding to before you sold off the pieces. that it grow to 60 employees from only a couple when
1: you just started? Yeah, 50, 60 employees, $10 million of consulting and project revenue. But still, I was only making less than $100,000 a year. I often... Wouldn't pay myself, you know. I Have to pay employees, and it wasn't a lot of profit in these jobs. In some cases, it was very competitive, and so you know what I found myself doing is working hundred-hour weeks and generating, on a per-hour basis, less than I would have made if I was running a, a or if I was working in an in an engineering office somewhere. And I had the liability; I would signed multiple personal guarantees. I didn't think much of that at the time. That just seemed like something that I had to do. And so I, uh, you know, I just willingly, I guess this is my mission impossible, bent in life. And those things came along. I just never thought about it. So I was like, sure, of course, you know, what could possibly go wrong? I'll do anything. Eventually, I learned that that wasn't actually the case. Would you
0: do that again today? And what would you advise young entrepreneurs who don't know about personal guarantees? You read
1: about personal guarantees and you think, oh, well, this is no big deal. I'll put my name behind it. And pay the loan off. But the truth is, is that a personal guarantee is cash. The banks that make you sign a personal guarantee are very serious about how they do it. It attaches to yourself and your properties in many cases. And when that business ultimately failed, I had to wind it down. The banks came after me and came to my home. And uh, I remember I had a couple of little, tiny children at the time in newborns came and said, okay, you know, we no longer value this business relationship and we're going to take your house now. That was an important moment in my career. I didn't really realize that that could happen. I was very naive in these business ways at the time. I had some technical training, but I didn't know much about this kind of, this side of business. And as some things happened in the business that I couldn't have controlled, uh, I ended up holding the bag at the end of that process. And And it was really, uh, I like to tell people, it's when I actually learned how to read a contract and and understand what it meant. I went to school on liability and how contracts work and how bankers work and the order and priority of, of securities in a company and the order of creditors in a business and how that works. And up until that failure in that business, I didn't know any really any of that stuff. I was just building an exciting business and it was growing rapidly. I was winning awards and I thought I was an amazing entrepreneur. And then two years later, I was laying every single person off and trying to figure out how to not have my house taken by the bank. And so it's very easy to have the wins in business change. You really do need to understand. This particular part of business is what the downside looks like. Up until then, I hadn't had any failures in my life, really. And so I didn't really understand that there was a downside. Like you hear about it, you don't think it can happen to you that there is liability and risk downside and what that means. I learned my lesson the hardest conceivable way in that regard. And it taught me those lessons. And forever after, I structured businesses in a much different way.
0: Would you say personally, was that like your lowest point? And just tell us about the family situation, dealing with that as well, being an entrepreneur and having the banker come to you and telling you you need to give him back the house.
1: Yeah, well, it, it was. It was incredible. I had two very low points in my career. Both times I was probably negative net worth. And I think it was very mainly humbling. You know, I think you get a sense of pride and maybe arrogance as an entrepreneur sometimes. And you need that to be successful. You got to be able to have that confidence to grow your business. But when this stuff happens, it can be very difficult. And so when the banker came around, I didn't even really understand what they were saying. And then I said, well, I eventually said to the bank, well, okay, I get it. You're going to take all my assets and sell them, but you don't really know what all my assets are or what to do with them. What if I helped you sell them? and explain to you what the value was. Would that be helpful? And they said, well, okay, tell us what you mean. I said, well, look, I've got these assets and various contracts and different things. And I think that if you give me a little time and a little bit of patience, I understand now that you're going to take my home. I get that. What if I described to you how I'm going to get you your money back? And I think at the time it was eight or $900,000. So it's a real reasonable chunk of change in the day. It was way more than I, just 10 times more than I'd ever made in a year in my business. And so the bank, I think they sort of chuckled and said, okay, you know, we'll give this guy a bit of time. We want a hundred cents back on the dollar and we don't care how we get it. And the interest interest clock is ticking and we know we can take his house, which will pay for part of that. And my house was very modest in the day. And so I set about to, I knew a little bit about administration and how to talk to people and I wrote the bank a letter every day for a year. What I did today, what I'm going to do tomorrow. Over one year, I paid back the bank 100 cents on the dollar. And I learned my lesson on the order of creditors and how to settle contracts and how contracts operated. And I became very savvy in the ways of downside mitigation and how that worked. And I still remember at the end of a year, the bank took me for lunch and sort of said, you know, this is an incredible story and no one ever does this. And everyone told you, you should have gone bankrupt. And I just said, no, I'm not doing that. And I think I know how to do this. And I laid off every person in the company, but for one guy and the two of us just did what we needed to do to reduce those liabilities. In retrospect, that was the most one of the most successful years in my whole career was reducing my liability from my personal guarantees from $800,000, $900,000 000 to zero by realizing that a guarantee is cash. And that taught me forever after to think about downside in a completely different way and how creditors work. And and those lessons have served me incredibly well over the 28 years since then.
0: At that point, is that when you realize, hey, I just made myself a crappy job after you paid everything back, you realize I don't wanna keep doing that and you made the transition into doing something else into your next part of your journey?
1: Yeah, you know, I learned an important lesson and there's a guy, Vern Harnish, who wrote some very interesting books. And he was involved in Young Entrepreneurs, which I was involved in, and now YPO. And he wrote a book called The Rockefeller Habits and hosted this program called Birthing of Giants. In that, he had assimilated basically all the trials and tribulations of entrepreneurs around the world. Some are very famous now. He categorized those into some habits that all entrepreneurs should follow in this One week a year for three years program, he talked to us about wealth creation and what it took to build an organization that had the opportunity to create wealth or, you know, a financeable entity, something real, as opposed to what a lot of people set up as an entrepreneur, which is not a particularly financeable thing. I learned something very simple from this process. In order to create a successful business that creates wealth for yourself and your family, or generational wealth, potentially, it's not a home run necessarily, but this gives you the opportunity, is that you need sustainable competitive advantages, strong sustainable competitive advantages that could endure over years or decades. When you think about consulting businesses like I had started, I didn't have very many sustainable competitive advantages. I was competing in a world that had lots of other people like me. And so, when you think about what a sustainable competitive advantage is, it really can only be three things: better, faster, cheaper. This was a very simple lesson that I learned from Vern back in 1996 and 97. Better, faster, cheaper. If you have one of those in your business, and you look at yourself critically and you say, "I've built a little consulting business, and I'm better, but I'm neither faster nor cheaper," then you've got yourself a really shitty job. You're going to work more hours than anyone else in your sector for less pay and probably higher risk. That's what I'd done. I would built a compelling and somewhat flashy business that had one sustainable competitive advantage, and that was primarily because I would take on risk that others wouldn't take on. As long as you could cover it with billion hours of effort, it was an okay marginal business. But it wasn't a wealth creation strategy for sure, and it probably would have killed me in the medium term. If you have two sustainable competitive advantages, better, faster, or better, cheaper, or cheaper, faster, then you can build a lifestyle business. And this is, again, this is very simple. And this is doctors and lawyers and people who make a lot of money by the hour. And you can make three, four, five, six hundred bucks an hour, 1,000 bucks an hour if you're good. It creates a lot of cash flow for your life, but it doesn't create wealth. You Can't get wealthy this way. All you do is jack up your costs, fancier cars, nicer houses, nicer wine, better dinners. But really, it doesn't often create much wealth. There's a lot of people who make a lot of money month over month, but they're not wealthy really. And as soon as they put their pens down as a lawyer or a surgeon, then you really are out of business. Not to disparage any of those trades. I am one myself, obviously, as an engineer. But the fact is, is that If you have two sustainable competitive advantages, you've created a great lifestyle business, which is not bad. Nice trips, some great lifestyle, but when you stop, it stops with you. It's very hard to sell those practices. They're largely valued on the basis of your intellectual property, which you take with you. You could create wealth over 30 years of practicing as a dentist, but it's not really a lifestyle. It's not really a wealth creation strategy. And so two sustainable advantages creates a lifestyle business. So there'll be there'll be entrepreneurs out there puking now because if they've built a candle shop somewhere and, and they love candles, they'll realize that they have one sustainable competitive advantage and they'll know now why they're working a hundred hours a week and making minimum wage that's a hard lesson. We all have to learn it. I did it for a decade. I'm probably the bottom third of people who catch on to things quickly. It took a long time for me to realize that I created a crappy business and had to shut it down. If you're a professional and you have an entrepreneurial bent, but you're doing the professional thing as opposed to trying to scale that business or create wealth by replicating it, creating hundreds of clinics as opposed to one that you work in, then you've created a a lifestyle business that generates cash but doesn't create wealth in most cases. So to create wealth, you need better, faster, cheaper, sustainable competitive advantages that endure through decades or more. If you start your business on day one thinking about that only, how is this business better, faster, cheaper? How do I create an unfair competitive advantage against my competition that lasts in perpetuity? Only then have you actually entered the realm of what entrepreneurs actually dream about and most don't do, and that is the voyage of creating generational wealth and a great business that's financeable and potentially something that can go very big and employ hundreds of people. It doesn't necessarily mean it's chasing the almighty dollar. It's not that. It just means that it becomes a real business. And this is the lesson that's the most important one of all of them is this very, very simple thing.
0: Well, how did you make a better, faster, cheaper business then? Well,
1: my career is mainly humbling. But once I figured this out and had the shit beat out of me badly, when I created the next business, which was a utility business. And what year was that? 2000. I wanted much higher barriers to entry for one. I combined three concepts together that created higher barriers to entry and was very difficult to replicate. And this was to build a utility company in the southwest United States. I started with this premise of a utility that used less water because I knew the world was entering a water crisis. So my initial premise was less water. I wanted to do it in a place where there was things that drove a business that would do better in a water-scarce environment, and that was growth plus water scarcity plus regulations, which we were pretty good at. I knew that if I could Aggregate utilities together in the water scarce area that I could use my knowledge around water scarcity management, that I could create an unfair competitive advantage from a regulatory perspective in the fast growing Southwest, and that if I created a very capital intensive business, I could create various entry for entrants that would want to try to get into the sector but wouldn't have the capital resources to do it. It's still not a perfect idea but it was a lot better than my previous ideas. This was my way to convert to at least something that looked more like enduring business. And when you think about sustainable competitive advantages, better, faster, cheaper, we were definitely better. We were now building utilities that actually made sense. We were faster because we were very well capitalized and we knew exactly what we needed to do. We could move very quickly. I had some partners, who I raised $50 million for this business off the business plan. And that was in 2000? In 2000. Okay, I they did that with Algonquin Power Income Fund. They liked the idea of buying utilities. They liked my ideas of creating a sustainable competitive advantage in the Southwest. And they said, okay, we'll commit 50 million to this opportunity and together we acquired utilities in the southwest and it was cheaper as my philosophy of aggregating utilities and using technology to reduce their costs and improve margins worked very well because we were buying utilities in high growth areas we generated a lot of buzz in that business. It was called Algonquin Water Resources of America initially and ultimately became a company called Liberty Water. That's a real business. It still exists today. I didn't stay with it forever. I stayed with it for three years. We deployed a few hundred million dollars into that business and it was a sort of shoot the lights out home run. However, I didn't own very much of it. I owned a tiny piece of a joint venture, and I didn't really create much wealth for myself. I created a lot of wealth for a lot of shareholders. I think they loved me for that, but it wasn't particularly rewarding. I was still working hard. I was making a lot more money now, but I didn't own very much of it.
0: What do you mean by very much? If I've never raised $50 million. I don't have any idea what percentage
1: you would even own on that. Well, you know, it was a joint venture. So I owned a piece of the joint venture, but the assets were owned by the fund. And and so the guys were good to me and no question, but wealth is created through equity and transactions. And that's another very simple takeaway from this thing. If you can only remember two or three things that are faster, cheaper, and sustainable competitive advantages, the second lesson is wealth is created through equity and transactions. You have to own equity, and you've got to do a lot of transactions to create value in the equity you hold. In this business, I didn't really own any equity, at least not of the... I owned an equity stake in the joint venture, but I came to realize that I didn't really own the equity that owned the assets, and therefore the wealth was passing beside me as opposed to being created for me and my partners. So I left that business uh, in 2003 and created a new business, this time one that I could own. So what'd you think about that group call? That was good. It's cool because you get to
0: see what other people are doing. They're kind of in the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful.
1: Definitely, yeah. Actually a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting.
0: Was it solely because of that? Because you realized that, hey, I need to earn a higher percentage and if I want to create real wealth?
1: Yeah. And I think, it too, that knowing that and knowing that you're creating the wealth and doing it for someone else in some cases, it becomes a little bit frustrating. It's not just that epiphany, but you see the wealth you're creating now. And if it isn't at least partly yours, and I'm not greedy, but you want to participate in that. I'm a big believer in partners and financial partners, and I love all that. But If you don't have any of it, and you're making a lot of other people rich, then it becomes a bit untenable, at least it did for me. I said, this time, I'm going to build something that I own some part of. And so I wrote another business plan for a company called Global Water Resources. And this time, I had screwed it up so many times over the years that I think I got it just about right. Wrote a business plan to acquire regulated water and wastewater utilities in the southwestern U.S. in high growth areas on the outskirts of town where our total water management intellectual property would be very valuable and improve our regulatory perspective. And, and I think it was helpful to the regulators, helpful to the developers. And I wrote that plan and I'd just done it with Algonquin, which had been super successful. And I was able to raise $100 million on the basis of that plan for, for global water.
0: And before you go any further, I just want to make sure that just keep it as simple as possible. So you basically saw these utility companies and you could basically find a way to make them more efficient through technology or just by aggregating them?
1: Yeah. Sometimes as an entrepreneur, you don't necessarily want to reinvent the wheel. I was just buying things that were a bit agricultural and then tuning them up, making them better as utilities and improving the automation within them and the the sophistication and then aggregating them so that I got some synergy benefit from owning many of them, putting them together and then growing them so that they became better. And because I always believed in water scarcity management and I have this fundamental altruistic belief at my core that I wanna do something that leaves the world a better place, we designed these utilities so that they use less water per capita than other utilities. And what that did for the regulators, I think, is they saw that our utilities were better than other utilities because they use less water. And from a developer perspective, they were better because we could build more homes with the same amount of water.
0: And could you give us a quick example of if you walk into one, what you would do? You walk in there, are you like, hey, if I implement this type of technology, this software, I'll start saving 5 or 10% on the water? Or what else were you doing to make it better?
1: Yeah, there was a lot we would do. So these utilities were often built by developers in the outskirts of a town, for example. And they did it just so that they could build homes. But from my perspective, I knew that the water resource was limited. We would upgrade the technology that treated the water so that the water would go from wastewater to reclaimed water. And then we would use the reclaimed water to meet other needs like irrigation and golf courses and various things. And so suddenly, instead of having to use potable water or drinking water for irrigation needs, we could supplant them permanently with reclaimed water. And what that did was it allowed the potable water then to be used to develop homes and the irrigation needs to be met with recycled water that reduced the per capita demand massively for potable water and allowed development to continue. So that was a, it's a little bit of a complicated technical thing, but it's just math. And ultimately, that was a way that we differentiated ourselves with regulators and with the developers, and it worked extremely well. And then we go into the utilities, and we'd automate them. And so all the things that were historically done like guys, or people, operators, we would automate them, including, for example, meters. We take you know, meters that were being read by meter readers and we make them into smart meters where they would be read by a tower on a continuous basis. And, and so we take these utilities and just by deploying technologies very tactically into them, we could improve what they were doing from a environmental perspective. We would improve how far you could stretch the resource from a regulatory environmental perspective. And we improved the technology, which also drove the bottom line. Suddenly, you took these older, somewhat dilapidated utilities, and we made them very sexy. And we built a lot of them, capitalized them. There's a way to do that. Suddenly, these utilities that we put together in aggregation became very valuable. That's how we did it.
0: Those are some great examples and understanding that. Is there anything else that could be missing? Did y'all make that software yourself or was there just software you knew about if you're implementing that, for example, that maybe the local municipalities didn't know about?
1: Yeah. You know, it was early days of the smart grid for water and what that meant. And if I could have bought it, I would have, you know, we had capital and and I could see that if we could automate meter reading and automate the billing processes and create real-time actionable information for people that we'd create something interesting. And you know what? You couldn't buy it at the time. I wasn't a software guy, still am not, but we cobbled together the software that allowed that to happen. You know, it wasn't very good then, but it served that purpose. And it demonstrated that that vertical billing to meter to customer, meter to cash in an emerging market, which was the smart grid for water, could be done and would be beneficial in the future. We we had a lot of focus on that. It, It really helped the complexion of these utilities. And really our mission was to just help customers understand what they were doing with water. Water prices were rising. Customers started to wonder, you know, am I really using $300 worth of water a month? And I thought it was only fair that we told them where they were using the water and when and why. And I think that was hugely successful for everybody learning about, you know, and water prices go much higher. And so over time, people are going to be more and more curious about their water use. And so this was obvious to me and my partner at the time.
0: How long did it take you to create the wealth that you're looking
1: for? Most of my career has been about altruism. I wanted to build water utilities that, that use less water and created wealth because I knew that I could attract capital that way. And if I could own a little piece of a much bigger company, then I could do well for my partners and ultimately well for myself. And that's how you have to think about it. Build a great company that has high competitive advantages, raise money when you can, and recognize you're going to get diluted a little bit. And hopefully at the end of the day, you still own a piece of the company. But the voyage to creating a big company is, I think, done with a lot of clever people. It's not a one-man show ever. It certainly has never been for me. I'm a great advocate of raising money with investors. And when you make money, a rising tide rises all boats. been fortunate enough to build several entities that I was able to own a little piece of a big pie at the end of the day, which is a lot better, I think, than owning a huge piece of a little pie or maybe a 100% of no pie. Investors can often be very helpful in many ways, apart from money. And because I have learned over my lifetime that it seems every year, I feel like I know less than I did the prior year. I'm always grateful for the insight that investors bring.
0: What has it prospered to today? Maybe we're for fast forward over the last 10 years of your company growth.
1: Yeah. Well, that, so that company, just to go quickly, that company took off. We went from zero to $500 million valuation over the period from 03 to 07. We are the fastest growing utility in the US. Had it just perfect, right area, right model, right investors. It was great. And then the downturn came, I was in Phoenix, Arizona. We went from uh 250 people back down to 60, and that was another incredibly difficult lesson for us. I had a lot of debt then, couple hundred million of debt at that point, and here I was again now, eight years later, 2008, scrambling, as I did in 1999 and 2000, to figure out what to do next. And ultimately, it was the lessons i learned in 2000 that allowed us to survive 08. and ultimately, we took that company public, to deleverage the balance sheet, it just so happened that it was attractive from a yield perspective in 2010, and we, and we took the company public, raised $75 million in 2010 to deleverage the business. Again, that was a very difficult area, and one of the things we did to improve our revenue during that period was to commercialize our back office all the work we'd done in smart metering and billing and technology that we'd built, we thought, okay, now this will be useful to other municipalities. So we commercialized that back office. I mean, this was very scrappy days. The world was falling apart. And so we took the assets that we had and the team that we could preserve, and we commercialized that back office and sold it to municipalities as a way of bringing some efficiencies and economies of scale to our fragmented water sector. And that business took off even in the downturn, and we were able to, on the basis of now the two businesses, the utility business and the commercial business, back office billing business, that was how we were able to take the business public in 2010.
0: Did you always plan on taking it public? I wonder what that experience would be like comparatively to you having a private company the whole time.
1: No, you know, and I think people often think of being public as being an end state. Oh, I hear entrepreneurs saying, well, one day I'll take it public as being a a finish line. Really, I did it as a way of raising capital at a fair valuation to deleverage my balance sheet, pay off some debt. And what I learned through the process is it was, first of all, it's a very difficult thing to do if anyone's done that. I found it to be very, very challenging, probably the most challenging thing I've ever done in my career it's going public is like day one. It's like the very first day, as opposed to the last day, you have to build a business, meet shareholders expectations. And again, it's not a good wealth creation strategy in many cases for the entrepreneur. Anyway, it's a very demanding job and a very ruthless fickle market in most cases. So I went public as a means of delivering the balance sheet. I wouldn't recommend it to be honest, unless you happen to be have a company that has amazing sustainable competitive advantages and here's the test this is a very simple test I mean, people ask me if i'd go public again i say this the only reason you go public is the entrepreneur's arrogant belief that they can create and maintain price tension in perpetuity and so if you think you can do that then you should definitely be public and then maybe jeff bezos has done that like he's created more buyers than sellers for his stock forever That's because it's a very, very compelling business with very strong, sustainable competitive advantages. And that's amazing. And my hat's off to him. Most of us can't do that. You can't create and maintain price tension in perpetuity. That means that no matter what, there'll be more people wanting to buy your stock than sell it forever. And what I found was that, you know, I was pretty average at this. On some days, I was able to create more buyers than sellers, but on other days, I wasn't. Looking back, left us with some good key points, especially when we're talking about your competitive advantage.
0: I, th- I think that's been the main key that I've taken away from it. Is there anything else that you'd want to leave entrepreneurs who are thinking about starting their first company
1: based on your experiences? After going public, my stock actually went down very materially, and I ultimately had to sell off the technology business. And to do that, I had to raise capital for it. And ultimately, I ended up going with the technology business and leaving the utility so I could get that accomplished. And then in the regulated utility, we introduced a dividend and that fixed the stock price, but I had to step down to do it. It turned out to be a very successful company that I historically owned a nice piece of. And then I became the CEO of a software company through the process and grown that business up into a nice size as well. And that's what I do today. I think most of it has been humbling. None of it has been easy, but if you remember these couple things, you know, sustainable competitive advantages is one wealth is created through equity and transactions. Don't be afraid to alter course and course correct as you learn about the market. None of us can see it perfectly. What we can be is introspective about what's happening. You start to feel like your ground shifting beneath you. There's probably a reason. And in my case, what I was able to see was that I had, you know, I was wrong about something. And what I put a million kilowatts of energy into was not working, we had to change course quickly. And we've done that many, many, many times, my partners and I, but never, never be afraid to course correct. And your investors will appreciate that as well. I think they know that you know the market better than anyone. And it's really that agility is critical. I think the other thing that's most important for me, and I learned it probably late, is that early as possible, get the best talent you possibly can. I finally figured this out in Global Water and in Fathom, which is the business I currently run. I always went to try to get the very best people I could possibly find in the sector and convince them to join me, and give them the opportunity to share in the upside. And this is something I believe in very firmly. And there's lots of great people out there and you can't do it yourself. In fact, oftentimes they can do it much better than you. I'm the least valuable member of my operating team. I always I like to thank I really define my role now, having been chairman CEO for 30 years, you only really have three roles, right? One is evangelize. I evangelize the mission and the cause of the business externally and internally, what it is that we do and why we do it and why we have a competitive advantage in the market and why we are beating our competition. Evangelize, number one. Recruit number two. I spend one third of my time talking to people and seeing if they'd be a good fit for the business and trying to build the best possible management team on the planet so that we can create a sustainable competitive advantage in our people. And number three is align. And that means make sure that everyone that is on the bus, in the right seats, and everyone is rowing in the same direction. And that takes a lot of time and effort. And if everyone knows exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it, it sure helps on a day to day basis. So evangelize, recruit, and align is what I do most now. I found out that even though I did a lot of crazy things like built financial models and did engineering, it turned out I wasn't very good at any of that compared to the young people who I hired today who are 10 times better at than I ever was. And I learned that lesson late, and you don't have to learn it early. A CEO's job is to evangelize, recruit, and align, and very little else, in my opinion,
0: you know, well, you appreciate you taking us on your ride, Trevor. It's been quite an experience, I guess, all worldwide between going to Africa, Canada, Southwest U.S. But if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, I wanted to reach out. What's the best way for them to reach out to you?
1: Yeah, sure. Anyone, by all means, I'd be delighted to do that. I love that part. I feel like I learned the lessons the hardest conceivable way. So if I can help so much, entrepreneur make less mistakes, I'd be delighted. And they can email me at Trevor.hill t-r-e-v-o-r dot H I L L at GWFathom.com. So GW Golf Whiskey F A T H O M dot com at any time and I'll make sure I respond to all of those if there are any.
0: All right. Well thank you for doing the interview, Trevor.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Hopefully that was some value to you.
0: If you have questions that you want answered on a follow-up episode then leave us a voicemail or text us at one 985 3469 This is our new phone number for all of you to voice your questions or comments about the show. So just leave your name, place where you're calling from, and message, and we'll play your recording for our thousands of listeners worldwide. Again, that number is 1-305-985-3469. Wait, 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 hold on. Before you go, I'm sure you know by now we have plenty of Patreon episodes to fill your passion bucket up with more business interviews. So check that out. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.